2: Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Mushatama. This is African Dialogue. Remember, you're listening to us on Channel 802 on the audio bouquet. We're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to southern Africa. That's our service into the African continent. You can also stream us if you're joining us from our international community on www.channelafrica.co.za Well, tomorrow is World Humanitarian Day and today we'll look at The humanitarian work that's been done on the African continent, the challenges faced, and the progress that's made in terms of the humanitarian crisis on the continent. But before we get into that, let's get our news. We've got Anne Moussa standing by.
3: In the headlines, South Sudan's Rahik Machar flees the country for a neighboring state. Three people killed and several injured in protest over a detained activist in Mali and scores detained by Thai military over tourist town attacks. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussam. The former Vice President and Opposition Leader of South Sudan, Rehik Machar, has left the country for a neighboring state. This comes several weeks after he withdrew from the capital, Juba, during fierce fighting with government troops. It's not clear in which neighboring state Machar is. In July, Machar was removed as South Sudan's first vice president after a disputed change of leadership in his party. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has expressed outrage over the acts of violence committed against civilians and peacekeepers in South Sudan. These acts took place between the 8th and the 11th of July by the South Sudanese Army, SPLA and opposition forces. An attack also took place in a hotel complex called the terrain in the capital, Juba, in which one person was killed and several civilians raped and brutally beaten by men in uniform. Ban has also announced his decision to launch a an independent investigation to determine the circumstances surrounding the incidents that took place in July. UN Resident and Humanitarian Coordinator for South Sudan, Eugene Owosu.
4: That was a major tragedy. A very heinous act indeed and very deplorable. And I think all of us need to come together to condemn what was unacceptable behaviour on the part of individuals. I think I'd like to use this opportunity... To call on the authorities to totally investigate this issue, Uh, we can allow impunity to prevail.
3: Protests in Mali's capital against the arrest of a popular activist radio host have turned violent, leaving at least three people dead and several injured. Dozens took to the streets in support of the radio personality Ross Bath, and activists say protesters knocked down the door of the courtroom where he was having his hearing. Bath was arrested on Monday before hosting a radio talk show discussing Mali's army. Thailand authorities say more than a dozen suspects have been detained. This is on suspicion of launching a string of deadly bomb and arson attacks against tourist resort towns last week. No one has claimed responsibility for the bombing spree in which four people were killed and dozens, including foreigners, wounded. And finally, soaring temperatures worldwide have made July the hottest month in modern times, setting a new high mark for global heat in 137 years of record-keeping. The report from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration came just two days after U.S. space agency NASA released its climate data, which also found July was a record-breaking month. July was almost one degree Celsius above the 20th century average. Scientists say the heating trend was being driven by fossil fuel burning, made worse by the ocean warming phenomenon El Nino, which ended last month. July also marked the 15th consecutive month of breaking monthly temperature records. Recapping the top stories, South Sudan's Rahik Machar flees the country for a neighboring state. Three people killed and several others injured in protest over detained activists in Mali and scores detained by Thailand military over tourist town attacks.
0: change your game be the voice of young african entrepreneurs change your game a program that promotes open discussion change your game we bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the african entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs Educates and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 10:00 hours to 10:45 a.m. Central African time. And on Saturdays, 13:00 hours to 14:00 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. When you enjoy me
2: Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Uh, You're listening to us right here on our frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa. Remember, you can also listening to us uh, online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Well, tomorrow is World International Humanitarian Day. That's World Humanitarian Day. Uh, the 19th of August has been designated by the United Nations General Assembly and is dedicated to recognize humanitarian personnel. Most humanitarian work is on the African continent, attributed to civil wars, poverty, and natural disasters. But there has been also some criticism to humanitarian work on the continent, which has been around the issue of ethnocentrism, which is when one societal value is used to judge another society. Critics of foreign humanitarian efforts in Africa argue that Western society's obsession with saving Africa bear traces of ethnocentrism. But we'll look at the work of uh, uh, humanitarian work on the continent, where progress has been made, where challenges are faced, and how we can move forward in the regard We're joined by Jens Pedersen, who is the Humanitarian Policy Advisor for Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF. We also have Marku Ayokomas, who is a Senior Regional External uh, Relations Officer at the UNHCR. Uh, he is the regional, part of the Regional Office for Southern Africa. UNHCR is the Refugee Agency of the United Nations. And uh, we're going to try to see if we have, uh, yes, we have Dewa Mavinga also on the line, who's a senior Africa researcher from Human Rights Watch. Let me start with you, Jens. Thank you for coming into our studios. Thank you for coming through. I know you've been here for most of the morning, so thank you for being here with us. Jens, tell us a little bit about humanitarian work. What are we talking about, just for our listener out there, when we're speaking about humanitarian
5: work? Good morning, Benjamin, and morning to the listeners. I think uh, when we talk about humanitarian work, you will well, when we in the MSF talk about sure. humanitarian work, we're talking about providing medical assistance and medically-related assistance to the ones most in need, the most vulnerable, affected either by conflict, yeah. natural disasters, yeah. but also what, what uh, we deem man-made disasters, which is of course often where things become a little bit controversial, mm. um, because in MSF we we have fought for providing ARVs for HIV-positive patients, we sure. fought for better and cheaper access to drugs in general, Mm -hmm. as much as we fought for access to providing surgical care or vaccines in conflict areas, for example. So when, when we talk about an MSF of humanitarian aid, we're talking of providing emergency critical medical care to people who are neglected.
2: Mm. Let me let me take this to you, Marco. I know you're working from uh, a refugee space and uh, it's very different to where Jens is coming from, from a medical perspective. From your side, does humanitarian work have a different uh, view or a different description?
1: Yes, good morning to everyone and um, good uh, International World Humanitarian Day for, for tomorrow to you and, and, and listeners yes i mean unhcr is the one of the the, the 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 largest humanitarian organizations in in the world we we have um, 9000 humanitarian workers in 126 countries around the world providing protection uh, and assistance to refugees and other people uh, who are victims of the forced forced displacement And this is an everyday humanitarian work. It's everyday work for us. I mean, we are, we we're pursued to 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 make people's lives better and more variable, and that's uh, our main goal.
2: I know that uh, I want to actually have a comprehensive conversation because it's good to break it down the way we are and uh, see the different elements and perspectives of it. And um, I want to move to you, Dewa Mavinga, a Senior Africa Researcher from Human Rights Watch. I know when people think of Human Rights Watch, they think of a watchdog. They don't necessarily think of humanitarian work, but I think some of it is related to uh, a spirit of humanitarianism. Uh, tell us a little bit about the work that uh, Human Rights Watch and how related it is to humanitarian work. Sure. Well, I think we've covered the different elements and aspects of how humanitarian work can unfold from a space where it's human rights-based and uh, Marco was speaking about from a UNHCR perspective from refugees and James Patterson is speaking really about from a a space of the Doctors Without Borders work uh, or MSF in terms of medical uh, provision. But in terms of the reputation that uh, humanitarian work has had in, in, in Africa, has been very interesting over time. Uh, Jens, in terms of, you know, the response mechanisms that you use as a humanitarian agency, how do you actually come into a country? What systems do you put in place to make sure that you're actually coming in there for the right reasons and to do, you know, not to waste also your resources, but to be effective enough in that particular time for that particular crisis?
5: Well, uh, as MSF, as an NGO, a non-governmental organization, uh, we don't have a mandate such as parts of the United Nations or the Red Cross uh, has, which compels on us that, that of course, we have to... Uh, Abide by the rules and regulations in any country where we work um, that doesn 't always mean that we do so happily or we don 't do it in, in in conflict with with some of these rules and regulations we 've existed for more than forty years in msf and and of course we 've evolved and, and, and we've bec- we 've grown and we 've become uh, more professional over those forty years and and when we do enter a country uh, let 's say based on a particular humanitarian crisis we can use the current malnutrition crisis in Borno State as an example what uh, of course there is initial information that that indicates to us that uh, needs are being unmet and uh, we need to respond to that and then it's From that perspective, uh, deployment of team based on purely the medical needs that we find, in this case, uh, screening of of children uh, to establish the level of malnutrition, um, the health indicators such as uh, number of morbidities, diseases, in other words, number of mortalities, people that die, um, those are are very basic and also stringent uh, parameters that determines for us how big the needs are. And that determines also our response from a medical perspective.
2: Mm. Well, it's very interesting indeed to see how much labor that must actually take and a lot of kind of, uh, you know, processing before you actually go into a country. I'm sure there's a lot of research that you put into that kind of work. How would you know how much resource would be required, maybe if you do move into Borno State, for, for the example that you've just mentioned, which is your recent case of the work that MSF is doing?
5: well it's it we can only know once we're there on okay. the ground, okay. which okay. is i I would like to argue one of the strengths of m s f in our operations and in our activities is that we're actually on the ground mm-hmm. um we do react um and and we are good at scaling up mm-hmm. um, Take the outbreak in west africa of of Ebola as another example where um m s f we were on the ground and based on, on what we see, what our patients tell us, what our partners tell us, in in, in this case the Ministry of Health in, in, in the Ebola-affected countries, uh, we react upon that. And of course, it requires a lot of resources, mm. both in terms of, of, of money, uh, human resources, supplies and drugs and so forth. Mm. Um, in, in MSF, we are lucky enough to be supported very, very generalis- generously sorry by a large uh, group of private donors, people right. from across the world, South Africa, Brazil, um, Denmark, uh, Australia, who support from their own pockets MSF that allows us to do this, uh, this kind of work and allows us to do it um, without anyone but our own medical inclinations Mm. telling us what to do.
2: Well, that's fascinating. And, you know, I really want to get into the nitty-gritties of that and and maybe come to Marku and and Dewa about really the practical aspects of humanitarian work. Because sometimes all we get up to is when you guys come up with these big reports or when there's a big crisis, that's when we focus on humanitarian work. But the day in and day out, and sometimes we just move over that as ordinary citizens. So maybe we'll come back and look at aspects of that. What are your thoughts on the this conversation we have how effective do you think humanitarian work has been on the african continent give us your thoughts on our twitter handle at african dialogue or you can sms us your thoughts on plus 27796957930 you can also email us at info at channelafrica.org i'm going to take a quick break and then we'll be back after this (laughs)
0: You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605 So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-4717211. Channel Africa, the voice of the African renaissance.
2: You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our service into the continent is on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa. Well, today we're looking at uh, tomorrow's uh, World Humanitarian Day. We know it's a very important day that has been put aside by the United Nations uh, General Assembly. And uh, today we're looking at the humanitarian crisis on the African continent, challenges that are faced by humanitarian agencies and the progress that they're making but also looking at the critical aspects of how they actually work when they come into a particular country, what approaches they actually abide to. And we've got Jens Pedersen, who's a humanitarian policy advisor from Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF. We've got Marku Aikomas, who is a senior regional external relations officer from the United Nations Refugee Agency, part of the regional office for Southern Africa. Joining us from Swaziland is a senior Africa research. Human Ra- from Human Rights Watch uh, Diwa Mavinga. And it's very interesting, Marco, to see some of the aspect that Jens was speaking about of the approach. And I'm sure with um, a migration and the manner in which uh, uh, migration and refugee is uh, actually happens, it's so unpredictable from your side. Uh, how do you actually handle the unpredictability of the space that you find yourself in, working in with refugees and migrants? I'm sure it's not as simple as we think it is, because it's very fluid at times,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean the um, as in any any sort any kind of work, you know we we pursue to be effective and, and produce a good impact. and uh, we constantly we review our um, emergency response mechanism and we try to find new innovation how to be more effective on the ground and and able to be there sooner uh and 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 provide provide the uh the necessary impact i think the key here is to i mean although we are a big organization we can't work alone we work as a partner in partnership with uh, many other un agencies and and the ngos i mean these are our fundamental partners and the and and the humanitarian to humanitarian one mm-hmm. having having sort of uh Coordination, effective coordination across the U- UN agencies and also with the NGOs and the governmental partners is the key in order to be responding on timely fashion when something happens.
2: Mm. And also it's interesting to see the fact that uh, when it comes to manpower, especially within the space of um, refugee work, how do you actually facilitate this process? Because... You know, processing documents and all, it's a different kind of field. And also you need kind of that people to facilitate that process and to look after that sensitive process because you're dealing with uh, statuses and and issues like that and making sure that the dignity of human beings is maintained, Marco. How how is that process followed? Because it seems like a sensitive one and one that also needs a lot of uh, paperwork indeed.
1: Absolutely. I mean, UNHCR and I guess all the other humanitarian agencies have have the, uh, uh standard operating procedures. How to manage different processes. I mean, how to provide register the refugees in uh, register the asylum seekers in 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 camps. Uh, how to provide food. What is enough food you know what are the standby arrangements Mm -hmm. with the partners in order to provide different sort of services I mean this is something that you know it's been there uh, last uh, 65 years of the UNHCR has been out there and all these processes are always sort of uh, being monitored and improved as we get the results and the feedback from the field so each time there is emergency. We evaluate our response and see what are the lessons learned. And based on those lessons learned, you know, uh, among the, uh, the humanitarian community, hmm. try to find better, more effective, less co- you know, cost-effective uh, uh, approaches to be there on time when the people need us, when mm.
2: things happening. Mm. Dio, coming to you, I find what the work of Human Rights Watch interesting because most of it is research-based. It's not as, um, as mainstream as we're speaking about with the work such as Doctors Without Borders or uh, the United Nations Refugee Agencies. Most of the time you guys are working on research, getting data, collating data, and getting reports out there, making sure that there's transparency in terms of information collation. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what does it take to actually do the kind of work that you do every day, Diwa?
4: Most heinous and egregious human rights abuses are okay in terms of conflict, where humanitarian actors are deployed and are working on the ground to help. So, and we believe that clearly, governments are the primary uh, duty bearers. They have the responsibility uh, to support and ensure their people have got all these things uh, that humanitarian agents might uh, temporarily provide for. So, the biggest way of dealing with a humanitarian crisis, especially Mm -hmm. the man made ones like the ones that result from conflicts, uh, or from even natural disasters is to ensure that the government takes responsibility and uh, takes steps uh, to provide for the rights of its people so what we investigate and document are the failings or the gaps that exist uh, as far as we are concerned and in a way that would then perhaps uh, complement uh, the work of humanitarian actors because Say if they um, are going to appeal for aid or if they want to engage with uh, a government, uh, you would know that as Human Rights Watch, uh, we have got less constraints in terms of uh, demanding that government publicly acts to ensure uh, that it provides particular things. But um, for humanitarian actors, because they are on the ground, then it becomes a, a much more delicate relationship. So, in that sense uh, when we come in as human rights watch we then highlight the issues uh, that we would have found on the ground in terms of uh, the shortcomings from a human rights point of view mm. uh, perhaps gaps in the laws or perhaps pushing government uh, to openly declare that there is a crisis because sometimes to activate humanitarian actors, you need the government in question to first ask for the kind of help that is needed mm. so for example if there is a drought uh, in the country People cannot come in as humanitarian actors to give food aid before the government has said we need assistance. And we have had such problems in countries like Zimbabwe, where okay. from a point of view of uh, political arrogance and sovereignty, the government would be reluctant to say there is a crisis. Mm. And uh, Human Rights Watch would then investigate, document, and expose the crisis that is there. And that then becomes the basis for a call. Uh, to international action to mobilize resources and have actors on the ground uh, supporting the people that need the aid most and also another aspect is that you know uh, across africa we have uh, uh, seen that sometimes there has been misuse of resources especially in cases where cash or aid is uh, uh, deployed and given through government so we are also there to monitor closely and look at uh, issues of transparency and accountability uh, to say, are governments really mm-hmm. ensuring that the aid reaches the most vulnerable, the people who need it most? Because mm-hmm. sometimes aid is diverted. Uh, things that are meant for refugees or for the internally displaced mm-hmm. uh, end up with those that are aligned to uh, to those in power. Mm-hmm. So it is mm-hmm. also our duty to expose that and demand accountability, so that the people who need the aid must receive it.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, Jill, um, it's interesting. Before I move on to some of the challenges that people face in terms of humanitarian work, I want to speak about the criticism that's been faced by... um you know humanitarian work because there's been a lot of critics of humanitarian efforts in Africa who argue that Western societies have this kind of obsession to kind of save Africa and bear and, and and this kind of saving bears this ethnocentrism, which which is using a societal value from another country to help another country. And I mean, looking at the HRW, it's a New York-based watchdog, and some people are saying, oh, "Who funds these organizations?" There's kind of that. Uh, you know, pessimistic view of humanitarian organisations. Sometimes there's that wonder: like, why are they so helpful? Why are they even here? Why do they even care about the continent? And why are they bring so much help when they're not even asking us what kind of help we need? Do you know
4: well, I, I think the, the basis here, Benjamin, is is that of the universality of uh, human rights that you know we should not say you know if people can uh, look away w- when you know uh, people are dying uh, where people have no access and that sometimes you know governments are reluctant to act on their duties but certainly mm. yes uh, there can be uh, a level of conflict because uh, humanitarian actors should not and do not replace government in terms of mm. the primary responsibility to provide for citizens mm-hmm. but at the same time need to uh, ensure that where there is a failure and where there is especially in case of major disasters or conflicts and there is a breakdown in institutions that are supposed to help the people the directional actors temporarily come into play so mm-hmm. that they start
2: Let me bring this back to Jens. Jens, your thoughts on that kind of criticism that I'm, I'm, I'm alluding to with uh, Diwara there about, you know, when you come as uh, Doctors Without Borders, we know that you even have a French name. I can't even pronounce it myself, but I'm not even going to try. But you know you come with your own value system, you come with your own preconceived ideas into another continent with completely different societal values. And uh, some people have that kind of criticism that that's not a helpful way to help.
5: Yeah, I I understand. Uh, and critique is, is always very helpful. I think okay. it's, it's, it's very interesting. I think um, the reality of... So for MSF, our... Core principle is impartiality, which means based on medical needs, we will treat whoever is the, uh, is the most sick or whoever is is the worst injured, okay. regardless of who that is. And and Benjamin, as as a nurse, I'm a nurse myself by by background. Sure. Um, I I will apply that principle and I will treat whoever is the sickest. And if that upsets someone else, then then we can discuss that. We mm. we can deal with that. Sure. Um of course, the reality is with with um, humanitarian aid is that it sometimes and well, actually, very often it goes against the power dynamics because yes, we are prioritizing either the most sick, the most mm-hmm. malnourished, or the worst injured. Sure, um, sure. Again, so when we say, um, "Are we offering the the help we need in Africa?" Then I'd, I'll challenge you uh, <laughs> and say. Who who is we? Sure, sure, sure. It's a question, but it also depends on who is asking the question. Mm. Um, And and I, as a medical practitioner, as a nurse, I don't have. uh, I I don't think it's a it's imposing. I don't think it's it's a um, a wrong Western ideological at all value to treat okay. the most sick patients before sure, anyone sure, else. Sure, sure.
2: Yeah, it's a basic right. It's just what, what um, Deo was highlighting there, kind of you can't isolate people from a philosophical aspect because of a basic right that they have. You know what I mean?
5: No, and and, and, and when people are sick, uh, we, we find in many of, of, of the – places, countries across the world where we work. The ones that need our help the most are often the ones that are in one way or the other, as I said in the beginning, neglected, Mm. either by design or by default. Mm. Um, Design, Because it may be a minority group, because they may find themselves on the wrong side of a conflict fault line, perhaps, Mm. but it doesn't make them any less uh, entitled to receive medical care.
2: Mm. Let me move this to you, Marco, because this is an interesting dynamic to bring you in, especially when it comes to refugee crisis, because... You know, when you when you look at refugees and we think about ideologies and people and, and concepts such as ethnocentrism, one's person's values to another society's values, and why are you helping me as someone from another nation? And, you know, and when you speak about the issue of border control as well, uh, I'm sure it makes things more complicated for the uh, United Nations Refugee Agency to work within that space. But I'm sure you guys have guidelines to overcome those types of uh, confrontations
1: uh, absolutely I mean UNHCR is also a non-political and humanitarian organization I mean and, and for our work we have received two Nobel Prize um, in our sort of uh, during our existence and um, if we these these are sort of the principles that we when we provide assistance is to provide Without sort of uh, any political or, or human, you know, issues issues involved. I mean, the Africa for, our, for us is of course a fundamental uh, area of, of operation. If We look at in, in terms of the, the the refugees out of the, uh, um, the 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 refugees, 16 million refugees globally. The sub-Saharan Africa is hosting mm-hmm. uh, the most of them as a region, 4.4 million. And, um, and, um, and 80% of those uh, come from countries like Somalia, South Sudan, Democratic Republic of Congo, Sudan, and Central African Republic. And, um, and, and as we see, you know, not only globally, but also regionally, you know, new and uh, reignited crises and conflicts take place, mm-hmm. uh, places like in Rwanda, Libya, Nigeria, Nigeria. and Nigeria. And they are older and, and unresolved crises. Uh, in Central African Republic, Democratic Republic, Congo and South Sudan. So it's fundamental that in these complex situations mm. we also, many of the countries uh, host the refugees from their neighboring countries mm. and sometimes there are, you know, uh, you know uh, complexities around these conflicts. That so. Humanitarian aid, it seems, to, you know, it's seen by all parties, all, you know, the, the actors so. of the conflict to be non-political and humanitarian. Mm.
2: And how do you overcome that barrier because when you come outside into an area with this high conflict I'm sure that's a challenging. How do you assure those who are in, in, in maybe in uh, are the cause of the conflict understand that you're there for um good reason?
1: You UNHCR it's not a uh, part of the the peace, peace negotiations okay. but we as we operate, operate in these complex areas uh, we, we need to have uh, coordination with all the actors who are there present because the, they, these actors are they the governmental or non-governmental okay. uh, armed actors sure. they're the ones who need to provide or somehow secure our, the security of our humanitarian okay. workers And and the problem is, of course, if there's no confidence that we are non-political or that we are only humanitarian, then, of course, that can cause problems for the security of our staff. So we try to be transparent in the way we work. We we talk to all the actors on the ground in order to be able to provide the humanitarian assistance to, to those who most... Are in need mm. and that's why that's why the the, the uh, today the the problem is that you know the humanitarian space is shrinking that mm. means that you know if if we don't have access to our persons of our concern who need the assistance uh, and access given by the arms actors in the, on the crown yeah. then that means that we're not able to deliver
2: Mm-hmm. That brings me to ask that issue of the challenges that are faced by um, those who are help, you know, who are part of uh, humanitarian personnel. What challenges do they face on the ground? Diwa Mavinga, you work in a very much. Uh, very contentious area especially when it comes to investigating and i'm sure it's a very dangerous space to work in especially because some of your work is politically aligned and sometimes you're exposing political issues unlike uh, uh, what's happening with doctors without borders or uh, the un refugee agency
4: well uh, certainly yes and um, uh, a big challenge is one of access. Um, uh, secure access to communities uh, to the people who are victims uh, of uh, rights abuses and who are vulnerable uh, to document their stories and then uh, speak out and call on governments uh, to account and deliver the basic rights. So you would find that uh, from a political point of view, uh, uh, most governments would
6: resist
4: you know uh, issues of accountability in terms of delivering on rights. So that then makes um, our access very difficult. And in some countries, we have had um, um, a right of access withdrawn for some of our senior staff who are doing research there. So, for example, we have had challenges in the Democratic Republic of Congo recently. We have had uh, problems um, in Ethiopia uh, or in uh, Rwanda, Burundi. So the issue of uh, the balance between access and speaking out accountability. So sometimes when we speak out there is a pushback Mm. because the focus for us is on impact and positive change on the ground. Uh, But when uh, governments and other actors take um, a position Mm. that they would not want anyone speaking to accountability. And when you talk of issues of corruption, then that also becomes sensitive and trying to protect the rights of communities and some of the victims that you uh, speak to Uh, you need to ensure that it's not just uh, the security of workers uh, will come in, but also the security of members of the community who provide information. So that also is an area where we uh, try to ensure that there is as minimal risk as is possible uh, in terms of um, ensuring that we are promoting rights without uh, putting anyone in danger. Mm -hmm. But it's it's, it's always a challenge when access is not there um, and uh, when governments Resist uh, when information mm-hmm. is presented on what the areas where they need uh, to take action to, to improve. But we, we have had mm, uh, success stories as well mm-hmm. where there has been a positive change as a result of the investigations and the exposure mm-hmm. of abuses that we have put out.
2: You know, it's great to have this conversation because sometimes we don't know the intricacies of humanitarian work. And where we saw kind of a a great uh, uh, success model was with the uh, Ebola outbreak. And we saw a lot of successes in that regard. There was kind of a huge collaboration with uh, humanitarian agencies at that particular moment. And coming back to you, Jens, as we wrap up the conversation, how do we actually strengthen the humanitarian armor? on the African continent? How do we make sure that actually there is excess, the excess that Dale was talking about, that there isn't this shrinking space that uh, Marco was also highlighting or alluding to there?
5: Well, it's it's a tricky question because it has several several layers. And yeah. of course, as we spoke about it, some of this is, is related to, to politics as well. I think um, for me, it's if, if we maintain a practical focus, Benjamin, which sure. means let's let's keep our eyes on um, delivering on the ground in the direct locations where people are affected, mm. um, the services, the medical services, the food services, um, if we maintain a practical outlook on sure. what is actually needed. Uh, because we are faced with, with several uh, humanitarian crises in Africa at mm. the moment, um, South Sudan, Nigeria, we have a yellow fever outbreak in, in in DRC. The largest ever vaccination campaign is is starting today in mm. in in DRC, mm. uh, in Kinshasa. Um, so I think it's important that that we uh, that we remain very very practical, uh, and with that in mind, we we put ourselves in the shoes of those who are the ones that need the assistance. And if we can't do that. Um, then it's when we'll see the blockages, we'll see the challenges. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's what we must do as practitioners, as Mm -hmm. citizens, but also our our leaders, our political leaders. Mm -hmm. Put ourselves in the shoes of the ones that don't have access to drugs, medicines, clinics, enough food, um, who are refugees, who are displaced. Mm -hmm. I think that's the very, very least we can do.
2: Fantastic. Uh, Well, I'm going to give you just your final sentiment, Marco, just in a minute or so. How do we actually take things forward? How do we improve also the operation of humanitarian work? Because there is a great need, as was highlighted there by Jens on the continent.
1: Right. I mean, the, uh, just. I mean, we have to keep the eye on the ball. Mm. I mean, as uh, uh, we know that as a result of the conflict and disaster, there are more than one hundred and thirty million people around the world who need our help, mm. and we have to go beyond the statistics and look at the real lives and real people how they're affected and uh, one important is just to just to, as we are doing today we talk about that we we make public information material we keep people people informed and we also allow them to take part by either volunteering or providing funding or whatever but this is a a common call for all of us that we need to you know we need to need to sort of we can't Sort of turn our uh, mm. eyes away. What, what is what is happening? And as a, as a humanitarian community, an international community, we the coordination is fundamental. We have to sort of uh, be effective. Uh, we have to be, mm. you know, uh, do more things, you know, with less 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 cost. You know, be cost effective mm. and try to be there on time when things happen. And, and I think the fundamental is the. The the planning, the coordination, and constant review of of how do we do things, and learning from that, and also getting the innovation from the private sector, which can help us to do a lot of things that you know where they have expertise, they can help us to do things better.
2: Mm. in thirty seconds. I've run out of time. Your final sentiments.
1: Well, I I think
4: um, African leaders and governments have to you know take leadership and responsibility, and. uh, drive an agenda of uh, human rights for all, and that no citizen should be uh, deprived of, uh, you know, their basic means for whatever reason. So it's about depoliticizing this space
2: sure, and sure.
4: agreeing that, you know, human aid is a right and it must be uh, given to all without any restrictions. And that is uh, key to ensuring that uh, people have what they need in terms of basic rights.
2: Well, this has been a great conversation to honor World Humanitarian Day tomorrow. Thank you to our guest. Thanks to Jens Pedersen, who's in our studios. Thank you for coming all the way here. He's a Humanitarian Policy Advisor for Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF. Marco Aikomas is joining us as the Senior Regional External Relations Officer from the UNHCR, also known as the United Nations Refugee Agencies. Thank you to Diwo Mavinga. It's great having you back on our program. He's the Senior Africa Researcher from Human rights watch. Well, that takes us to eleven forty six. Let's quickly move on and get our business news. We've got uh Wisani Matebula standing by.
7: Thanks, Benjamin, and good morning. Tensions are raining high in Zimbabwe after police used tear gas and water cannons to disperse their protesters. Zimbabweans have been protesting against their plans to renew the use of local banknotes. Political analyst Eldad Musnungure.
4: Clearly, precarious. It is a very fragile situation, not only politically, but in terms of the economy, which has generated the kind of grievances that have fed, you uh, know, the uh, protest and demonstration. So, you know, there
7: is unity all around. In short, the situation is untenable. Kenyan traders have accused the Tanzania border officials of harassing them despite the existence of the East African Common Market Protocol. Daida Daveta County several dealers complained that they're not allowed to conduct business in the neighboring country freely. Daveta Deputy County Commissioner Henry Wafula has confirmed that several Kenyan businessmen complained to his office about harassment by Tanzanian authorities. And Rwandan importers and exporters will no longer need to travel to Dar es Salaam port in Tanzania to clear their shipments. Thanks to a move by Tanzania Ports Authority to open a liaison office in Rwandan capital Kigali in October, importers, clearing agents and exporters will be able to clear goods from Kigali without having to travel to Dar es Salaam. The liaison office will be a one-stop center where customers can access information. South Africa's trade union, Sepaw, says it expects uh, all of its members in the petroleum industry to return to work by Monday. This follows their three-week strike, which ended on Wednesday. Sepaw, which represents uh, more than uh, 15,000 workers, met with the employer on Wednesday to sign a two-year wage deal. Sepaw spokesperson, Clement Chicha.
4: We are happy to have uh, reached an agreement in line with the of or recommendation of the CCMA commissioner, which entails five key areas. The agreement will last for two years, and workers will be expected to be going back to work from the signing of agreement until on Monday.
7: In Nigeria, now central bank has raised uh, the amount of foreign exchange that the bureaus uh, can ac- access from banks to 50 billion U.S. dollars per week. The decision is to raise the bar was reached at the bankers' uh, committee meeting in Abuja on Wednesday. Now your financial indicators, the dollar, 13.42 South African rands, 10.19 Botswana Pula, and 9.95 against the Zambian kwacha. The dollar is also trading weaker at 0.77 to the British pound and 0.88 against the euro. Commodities gold, $1,352. Platinum, $1,126 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil is at $49.70 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now, back in an hour's time, with another update.
2: Well, it's time now to get our sports. So, uh, Zozo is going to give us an update on the Olympics Rio. I know Kenya did well yesterday with the uh, uh, athletes there. So, let's find out what's happening in Rio with uh, Figsozo. That's Linguati.
8: now sports update this hour starting off with the olympic news new olympic record holder Conceslas kipruto of kenya is elated from winning a gold medal in his first olympics kipruto broke the olympic record in a 3000 meter steeplechase in a time of eight minutes 21.40 <laughs> Uh, I think I'm so happy today. I've got what I was aiming for the year. I think this was uh, the aiming for me to be Olympic champion. Uh, It was my first Olympic, but uh, I came here for the first year and I got it what I was aiming. Uh, I didn't want to be like in World Championship. I went there for the first time. (coughs) I got silver. Again, the second time I got silver, but uh, this time round I was not for I was not ready for silver. I was ready for gold. I prepared well for that, and I got it what I was aiming for. And in football news, the Brazilian men's football team has kept their hopes of winning the first ever gold medal at the Olympics alive when they humiliated Honduras six 0 in the first semi-final played at the iconic Maracana Stadium in Rio de Janeiro on Wednesday. São Paulo that the game take place in São Paulo where Brazil coach Rogério Micalo was pleased to see his team winning with a bit of samba style.
6: I think
9: that we have had a uh, good campaign so far, and uh, at this final stretch, we're exhibiting good football, a uh, football that we ambition to uh, show, a football that has our essence, our characteristic, which is a beautiful uh, game, well played, but we also know that this is not enough. Uh, and that the, the team has to struggle out there. And so this is what they have done. They have pressure their, uh, pressured their opponent. It, they have uh, donated themselves in passing the ball round, and we were lucky enough to have scored a goal, a goal right at the beginning. And this is the fruit of Neymar's struggle, uh, which, which has been constant, and not only his, also uh, that of all of the men in the front line. So I think that we are arriving at this final stretch very strong. Nevertheless, every match is a different story, so then the next match it's going to be a new story. But I think that we are strong because uh, from the beginning we have been developing, we have grown, and I think that this is an important time.
8: And in cricket news, while pace remains the talking point for the Proteas, Standard Bank Proteas off-spinner Dane Pied believes spin could play an, equ- an equally important role in the opening Sunfall Test match against New Zealand, starting at Sahara Stadium Kingsmead on Friday. Pied will be leaning on his past experience of playing cricket at his time of the year and says patience will be crucial and that factor is to have an impact in the match pete is the lone specialist spinner in the squad and understandable selection considering the nature of the south african conditions which often favor pace he says his strong mode of attack will be his variation of pace along with the extraction of bounds which often comes into play at king's bid and finally springbok center juan Dion says it is good to be back in the national team after missing out on the past four years because former coach Henne did not believe he was good enough. De Jong says his focus is on getting up to speed with the national team and fighting for a place in the side. And that's your spot news this hour.
2: That's how we wrap it up. Thank you for joining us. What a great program we had today. Very interesting to look at the work of humanitarian workers. And, hey, tomorrow let's celebrate them. Do something on social media if you can. Hashtag them. Or just celebrate someone if you know they're a humanitarian worker in your area. Uh, yeah, so that's how we wrap it up. We'll be back next week, Monday. Can you believe the week is over? I can't believe how quick this year has gone. But thank you for joining us here on our program. Until uh, next week. God bless.